You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Driving Law podcast. This week, I'm very excited to be talking with Emma Wilson, and Emma is my former articled student and now a uh, newly called lawyer as of last Friday at our firm, Acumen Law Corporation. So hi, Emma. Thank you for joining me. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I, I Actually, I wanted to tell you, and I don't think I told you this when we were like doing your your little call thing in the office or, or out to lunch, but it was like, I think maybe the closest moment I'll ever have in, in my life. Cause like, you know, I never like want to have kids, but like to feeling like I, like I raised something, like oh. I, I created a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You created <laughs> I <know>. me. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you kind of did all the work and I just sort of gave you directions, but yeah, <laughs> you created yourself really. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was kind of like a little, like a, a new experience for me. So Thank you for letting me have that experience. Yeah. <laughs> I'm proud to have been a part of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, how are you liking? Can you can you tell us how you're liking your first uh, first week as a lawyer? Um, it's pretty cool. I mean, I haven't had that much going on this week, but even just being able to introduce myself without having to explain that I'm an articled student or tell people that um, I am actually a lawyer is pretty great moment. Yep. Yeah, um, I mean, I have a high school reunion coming up on Saturday, so I can actually say I'm a lawyer and not, oh, I'm a student training to become a lawyer and explain all that. So that's kind of cool. Cool. Yeah. Good. What what are you going to, are you willing to admit on the uh, recording which high school reunion it is? Um, Delta Secondary School. Oh, no, I meant like 10 years. Oh, sorry. Um, Just tenure. Tenure, okay. Cool. Well, that'll be fun. You can go, like, rub it in all the bullies. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully they, I mean, hopefully they don't listen to this, but... Uh, they probably don't, but you never know. I don't, I don't really know who listens to this. I know some lawyers do, and I know some, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a variety of people who listen to the podcast. Um, identify yourselves, listeners. We want to know. <laughs> Um, anyway, I wanted to talk to you because you wrote a blog post, a guest post for my website a little while ago yeah. about um, like traffic enforcement and people who are low income. And I thought it's a really great topic for us to get into now because the government has announced yet another distracted driving blitz campaign where they're going to crack down on distracted drivers and, um, you know, the usual conversation that comes up surrounding this, which... I'm always very cynical about is, is this just a cash grab? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, you have this really interesting perspective and insight into maybe why it's a cash grab or why it's problematic. So tell me about that. Sure. Um, well, for me, like, I don't, my main concern isn't just the fact that the government's collecting fines from people because that's something that they've always done for traffic tickets. Right. Um, but, uh, the concern that I put in the blog post that I still have is just the impact that it'll have on working people. Um, because, I mean, if you are somebody who uh, 
just drives to to and from work every day and plausibly could take the bus and you don't need your vehicle for that much um, and all you just get a ticket and you want to pay the fine that's not necessarily that big of a deal um, but if somebody works minimum wage and they need their car for work whether their their work actually involves having a vehicle or if they can't afford to live in the city of Vancouver and they're driving and they get a couple cell phone tickets and they end up getting a driving prohibition um, and like the driver risk premium and driver uh, penalty, sorry, penalty points premium, it adds up to so much just yeah. because it makes it so hard to get to work and live your life. Uh, yeah. Whereas someone who maybe has a more privileged lifestyle or just lives downtown because it's really expensive to live downtown wouldn't have the same impact. Right. I mean, you see all these people all the time who are who have no problem paying traffic tickets. It's it's for them. It's the cost of doing business. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was pulling out of the parking lot of the courthouse at lunchtime today, and like driving right by was a brand new shiny green Ferrari, and I was like, this person <laughs> has a superior ability to foot the bill for three hundred and sixty eight dollars, yeah, plus all the points and and the penalty, uh, the driver risk premium, and all of that. Every time they get a cell phone ticket, yeah, um, and it does nothing. To to discourage or deter those drivers. And then on the flip side of that, you have these people who have this this inferior ability to pay the fines who are being unduly punished. And I I almost think that, like, traffic ticket, like the sentencing, is the fine. Mm -hmm. And traffic ticket sentencing is, is often done in a way that's not consistent with the principles of sentencing. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, most of the time it seems like you get maybe... 30 seconds to explain to the judicial justice of the peace why you can't pay that fine. And there's mandatory minimums for most of them as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're stuck with a three, it, sorry, if you get like, let's say it's speeding in a construction zone and it's the $196 fine, it doesn't matter like whether you have $196 or whether you have $5 in your bank account, that is the fine, right? Yeah. So... I feel like that's kind of a hidden problem with these that uh, for people that are kind of just barely scraping by going 10 kilometers and over, sorry, going 10 kilometers over the speed limit in a construction zone, it's like now suddenly they have this big problem. And if you don't pay your fines, then ICBC won't let you renew your license. So, yeah, it's and and the other thing that the other added sort of hidden component to it that you, you know, you're hinting at there is that not only are you not able to renew your license, but depending on the ticket and your circumstances, um, you might not even be able to continue driving. Like Mm -hmm. for a cell phone conviction, if you have an N, a single cell phone ticket will give you usually a four-month prohibition. Right, yeah. And like we see clients all the time that, for example, um, a single mom gets a phone call from her kid's school, would usually not pick up the phone, decided to pick it up this time just in case it's an emergency or something, and then that's when they get a ticket. And lots of people forget to get rid of their N, or they just got it because they need it to take care of their kids, and all of a sudden it's gone, right? Yep. Um, like, and, but there's also costs associated with driving prohibitions. Like you have to pay your hundred dollars to ICBC to Mm -hmm. review your driving prohibition. 
And then if they prohibit you, which, you know, oftentimes now um, the result on a cell phone type prohibition is a reduction and not a revocation entirely, it's another $250 to reinstate your license after that. So you're out the 368, you're out the driver penalty points, you're out the $100 to ICBC, and you're out the $250 to reinstate your license. Now you're getting into, you know, close to $1,000 for people who are, are living on the edge and, you know, often scrambling together a couple hundred bucks at the end of the month to buy groceries for the next month. Yeah, exactly. And for a lot of these people, I wonder how they're going to be able to pay that. Um, I used to see clients when I worked in student legal clinics who they had things like this happen and they just never went back to driving. Uh, because they simply couldn't afford to. Or once in a while, we get calls from people that are in that kind of situation where they haven't driven for 10 years because of various debts that they owe to ICBC, and now they want to get their license back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, we don't see them because it's not like they're going to be able to pay a lawyer either, but um, I'm sure there's lots of people out there that have had their lives very badly impacted by the fines. So... Right now, the options that people have are relatively limited. Like if you get a ticket and you want to dispute the fine, obviously you're subject to whatever the mandatory minimums are. And your options are dispute the fine amount and provide written reasons why your fine should be reduced or go to court and explain to the court why your fine should be reduced. And that's, I think, incredibly unsatisfactory because if you do have to go to court, you're looking at, you know, potentially a day off work, um, the travel, the parking, uh, and then having to go, which for most people is a nerve-wracking experience. I mean, I remember my first time in court, um, like as my first day as a temporary article student, thinking, oh, this is a little, like, this is a little nerve-wracking. And the first traffic ticket I defended, being a little bit nervous going up and talking to the police officer. I mean, now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now it's no problem, right? Hey, I know you. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I'm sure you experienced the same thing when you when you were starting, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of nerves. Um, okay, it's, it's, it's scary the first time, right? And you don't know anybody. You don't know the system. Yeah, and when you're, when you're not even legally trained, like at least, you know, in... For you and I, when we were in those those circumstances, we had you know three years of law school under our belts, and the fact that you know oh, we're we're almost lawyers, and we're you know we're going to be um, going to be able to do this. But you have you have people who've maybe never set foot in a courtroom in their life, who don't know the pro- process, um, who are intimidated because of the varying levels of power imbalance. And how do you adequately articulate your financial situation? I don't know. I, I just think, you know, as you said, you get 30 seconds to talk about it um, before, you know, the JGP is, is kind of hurrying on to the next case because they deliberately overload the courtroom. Um, it just seems like a really unsatisfactory way of allowing people to deal with it. Right. And I mean, then there's also the factor that a lot of these people don't speak English that well. And it's like trying to communicate in two different foreign languages, Right. Like, your, yeah. your first language not being English and definitely not having any familiarity with the legal system and what's going to sound compelling to the judicial justice or not. Um, and I feel like it's actually, at a certain level, a little bit humiliating to have to go in front of the court and tell them how broke you are in front of, like, 50 other people. 
So I I think people get scared and they don't go to court, um, even though maybe they should for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't want to have to go to court. And, you know, thankfully, I haven't had any tickets. And B, you know, I work as a lawyer. I, I'm not in, in such dire financial straits that I can't afford a, a fine for a ticket. But, like, I wouldn't want to have to go in court and say, you know, oh, I, I work, you know, this job and I only earn, you know, $1,300 a month and it's really hard for me to make ends meet or I live in an SRO or whatever the case may be. That's, you know, people's financial situations are very, very deeply personal and it can be humiliating. Yeah, it, it's just not a, a great situation. Um, but also then they can't, they can't go below the minimum anyway, right? So some people go there and they bear their soul and then it's just, well, I can't go below the minimum anyway. So, you know, it's a real shame. So and then you have the other option, which is to do the written application and say, hey, you know, here are my written reasons why I don't think that I deserve a um, I don't think I deserve this fine and why I should pay less. But then I always have such reservations about presenting that type of a case in writing um, because you don't get the opportunity, and, and you know, there's court decisions that recognize this, the value of seeing and hearing witnesses in person, and the value of telling your story and adding your emotion to it. Uh, yeah, that's true, and um, I mean, the judicial justice might have questions after seeing what's been write, written down, and they can't answer, sorry, they can't get any answers to those questions mm-hmm. to clarify. Um and you and also I, have people too who are, you know, they they are in low income situations or they have they have difficulty paying because of uh, sort of burdens that they face as a result of having learning disabilities mm-hmm. or being recent immigrants or not speaking the language. And then how do you adequately express yourself in writing when that's not your your skill set? Yeah, exactly. It tilts everything towards people who are already in a more advantaged situation. So you've looked into, I know this, um, some examples where they do things differently yeah um i know that at least in finland they actually have this weird system where they'll give you a ticket uh, with the fine amount being based on your yearly income um there was a news story a few years ago about somebody who got a one hundred thirty thousand dollar ticket because uh, he was a multimillionaire, um and i mean i don't know that giving out that level of tickets would ever uh, work in Canada. Um, I think that it would make some people very upset. But on the flip side, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to have some room for uh, some flexibility in terms of what people's ability to pay actually is. Because um, the reason why they do it that way in Finland is that if you're low income and you get a ticket, it's not going to bankrupt you and it's not going to um, cause you undue hardship. Whereas if you're very high income or you have a lot of wealth, it'll still serve as a deterrent where it might not if you're just um, the guy, I think, in the Lamborghini that you talked about earlier, right, who's just going to write a check and kind of forget about the ticket once he's paid it. That's that's not going to happen when your ticket is proportionate to your wealth. Um, I don't know how that would work in BC, though, because uh, I don't think ICBC is able to keep track of our incomes and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if we would want the police to have that, um, you know, just when they scan your license plate or whatever anyway. But um, what I was thinking maybe could work is if they actually 
let you do something like have an appeals process on the basis of hardship that applies even for fines that usually have a minimum. Right. That's that's actually not a bad idea. I was thinking that to implement that here, all they would have to do is is serve the ticket with the fine amount pre-printed on it um, to indicate, you know, X number of dollars if your annual income is zero to, you know, 32000 or whatever the case may be, um, you know, and set it out, break it down by income. Mm-hmm. And then on the ICBC side, they could have have some legislation drafted that would allow ICBCs for the sole purposes of assessing the fine amount to be paid for a ticket to look at somebody's tax return information. Because you have to file your provincial tax returns anyway. Mm -hmm. So the government has collected this data. It's just allowing one branch of the government to access the data collected by the other branch for determining the enforcement of fines. And they could even borrow sort of the income criteria from the sort of the family law um, support guidelines that we have where they break down the income levels there um, because there's already been some extreme levels of calculation and care yeah. and consideration <laughs> that have gone into developing those tables um, and and the assessment from that income of people's ability to pay certain amounts. Uh, I think they would be able to rely on and extrapolate from that data pretty effectively to create a fee schedule like, I don't think it would be that hard. It requires a little bit of legislation and mm-hmm. then just just information sharing. Yeah, that, that I hadn't actually thought of the child support guidelines, um, but that's a really great example of, of, like, sorry, for the child support guidelines, is that actually those are legislated or those are just used by the courts for common law? I think they're, like common law. Okay. I'm not a family law. Yeah, no. I'll leave it to family law lawyer listeners to correct. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that's a really good example of uh, the law actually, you know, finding out a way to do this this kind of math um, in sort of a sensitive financial area, right, for people, um, because sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Um, but I, I do like I, I do like your idea of allowing an exception for people who are low income to the mandatory minimums, and we see that you know we see exceptions to required financial obligations in our legal system mm-hmm. in other places, right? It's not just it doesn't just come up in driving law; it also comes up for people who want to file documents in court and they can't afford the filing fees. You can apply for indigent status. Yeah, exactly. And and so you know, there's already again a, a body of law and a mechanism that we can borrow from to make this happen. It's just a matter of implementing it, which leads me to the burning question mm-hmm. that I hinted at at the beginning, which is: Is this then just a cash grab? The the cell phones. Yeah, cell yeah. phone enforcement <laughs> fines, traffic ticket fines. Is that um, just about lining government coffers? I mean, I think in in part. Definitely, because, I mean, ICBC has been in incredibly bad straits, and we can kind of see that the government is doing whatever they can to try to put it back together. And if that just includes collecting a lot more fines from people and more of these premiums, I mean, I guess that's what they're doing. Um, I don't, I can't speak to what their actual motivations are, but that seems like the result at, at the very least. Yep. Um, interesting. Okay. Well, I, mean, I, I, I 
am going to be my usual cynical self and say, nope, they're just, uh, they are just running this cash mm-hmm. grab, you know, system where they're trying to get um, money out of, out of people um, every time they're, yeah. you know, they're strapped for it. And I think um, the fact that they haven't, and especially now that we have an NDP government, like a socialist government, people say, mm-hmm. um, why are we not getting, um, why are we not getting some steps taken by this government to do this? Why is what the steps that the NDP has been doing has been to just continue with the distracted driving blitzes? It feels so disingenuous. I mean, I feel like part of it might be just that I don't think that in Canada, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you've ever actually had this conversation about, um, you know, the different effects that these kinds of things have on people who are low income. Because, I mean, there ha- there hasn't been this huge blitz before. So it hasn't been, like, in terms of cell phones, right? Like, yeah. not as much. And BC is so over the top right now in terms of just the level of enforcement and the consequences that flow. I think this is a new th- new thing that I would think, like, maybe, I don't know if this is right to say, but I think maybe the government is kind of hoping that people are just not going to, you know, pay that much attention to it or look into it as much because um, traffic tickets has not really been a particularly big social issue in the past. Um, I mean, there's been the problems with, like, the photo radar and everything, but in terms of, like, social justice, I don't think that traffic tickets has really been that high up on anyone's uh, attention. But now it's, like, I feel like it's a different story at this point. As we become increasingly reliant on technology, like cell phones, to do our jobs and to, to live our lives and to stay in contact with people, as well as increasingly somehow reliant on our vehicles, mm-hmm. um, to do our jobs. And I mean, a problem too that we see a lot in the lower mainland because you have more people, particularly people of lower income, pushed out into the outskirts because they can't afford the rent or the housing prices in Vancouver proper, but they're working in Vancouver. Um, I think that it, it does, as, as you identify, become a real issue of, of social justice. So where are the, you know, I, oh, I want to use this term in a celebratory way, mm-hmm. where are the social justice warriors for traffic law? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe that can be part of my job and your job. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I can definitely take on the term social justice warrior, at least ironically, I don't mind. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I, I meant it in a genuine yeah, way there, yeah. not in the ooh, social justice warriors. Yeah, me too. And other, mm-hmm. you know, um, anyway, <laughs> it's just like the words were coming to me, and I was like, hmm, there's a negative connotation there. But. Yeah, but I, I think maybe it can be reclaimed. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. We'll reclaim it. Yeah. I like it. Um, the but no, there there does need to be, uh, I think, more attention to pay to this, and more attention to how it how it hurts people mm-hmm. and hurts families. You know, if you're taking food out of the mouths of children or you're keeping kids from getting a new pair of shoes or a new coat in the winter, how is that serving the purpose? I mean, going back to the principles of sentencing, what, there's denunciation, deterrence, general and specific. And rehabilitation, um, too, right? Rehabilitation, yes. And then then also, you know, the idea of proportionality. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think proportionality is simply lost when you have mandatory minimum traffic fines, but also exorbitant traffic fines, like $368, yeah. plus all of the other hidden costs. 
I just I think that that eliminates this proportionality inquiry. And and sentencing is supposed to be an individualized exercise. But as far as regulatory fines are concerned, there's nothing individualized about it at all. Yeah, and I feel like I'm I'm a bit concerned that we could actually end up going to, in the direction that um, has happened a lot in the states, which is like someone gets one ticket and it snowballs out into ending up filing for bankruptcy just because of all the failure to pay and, you know, not getting your license back and just having all these different problems happen. Like, this is something that's been noted in the, in the States, especially for African-American people. Um, they're disproportionately pulled over. Uh, and then people who don't have the money to pay the tickets end up with more and more and more fines and, you know, getting collections, agencies yeah. calling them and stuff. So it's not been as common here, but I think it's going to be. And there was talk recently about ICBC potentially referring um, traffic ticket fines to collections agencies, mm -hmm. which hasn't been done thus far. Basically, right now, they just wait. They wait until you want to drive again, and then they're like, oh, you can't have a license yeah. insurance. You owe us you know, $1,400 or $14,000. Well, and I mean, once it gets sent to a collections agency, then it gets sent to the uh, credit bureau, and... You know, you could find yourself, like, being unable to rent an apartment or get a car on financing um, because of a ticket you got five years ago, right? Like, it's such a big problem. Yeah. I, do, I don't um, know that necessarily it'll ever get that bad oh, okay. in D.C., but, I mean, I don't, you know, well, also... I don't have a lot of trust for for the government in not doing that, mm -hmm. um, especially when you have these, you know, these huge financial issues that we have right now in our province. And, I mean, Paul and I talked a little while ago about how driving law is connected to um, to the the um, casino money laundering. <laughs> um, I don't know. I kind of called that one a stretch, but okay, Paul. Um, and and you have all these huge social problems. Um, happening you've got the ICBC dumpster fire and then this money laundering provincial scandal there's a, an element of desperation that the government has to have right now mm -hmm. and i always feel like every time there's that desperation they turn it back around onto drivers yeah i mean it's the easiest thing to do yeah right and and part of it i think is a failure of the law to recognize and, you know, perhaps maybe a failure on the part of lawyers to not make it clear enough, the law to recognize the role that driving plays in people's lives. I mean, every time you, you see, like, constitutional challenges um, to driving decisions or arguments about, you know, social justice issues as they relate to driving, the the courts are always very quick to say that driving is a privilege, not a right, and that you don't have a, a charter-protected interest in your ability to drive, even though it relates to your mobility and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, to some extent, sometimes Section 7 interests. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, like, how we, like, what steps we would take to sort of undo the impact that that has had on people who are, are marginalized as a result of their economic situation. Um, there is a way. <laughs> there is a way. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, because, like, I feel like uh, when I have had these conversations with people, it's usually, you know, something that's happened years and years ago, and it's kind of just been 
accepted. Um, I think another problem in Canada is like in general we don't really listen that well when marginalized people are talking about like the problems in their lives and that kind of thing, right? Um, so why do you think that is? Like let, let's let's zoom out <laughs> from from driving for a moment. Why is it that that we in Canada don't pay as much attention as we should? I mean, I just saw this morning and I, I couldn't even read it because I was so mad, a result of a survey that was conducted that said the majority of Canadians feel that the government spends too much time apologizing for residential schools. Um, well, I mean, I feel like Canada, like we have this image of ourselves as being really progressive and accepting people, but then just the fact that we view ourselves through that lens, it's kind of like self, um, self, I don't know, like, uh, it's like you're excusing yourself for your own, your own issues. And then it's like, people don't want to actually hear it when it's like, you know, just saying that you're diverse and saying that you accept people is not enough it actually takes some action including those apologies and and doing things to make amends for for harms that have happened but i mean that I, that's a whole super long conversation too right um but th- it's a country like founded on colonization to begin with yeah and um a lot of the wealth in the country wouldn't have been gained uh if not for horribly violent things that were were done to people and are still being done to people to this day right so it's there i i don't want to go too much into this i guess but um I, I feel like this is not a we don't live in a particularly equal society um but at the same time we live in a society where we don't want to talk about the inequalities that exist because it's uncomfortable um whereas maybe in the states people yell at each other in horrible ways but they they actually talk about the injustices that exist um whereas we're kind of like oh let's not let's not talk about that that's uh, rude or that's not a pleasant conversation to have um or like we're great so it's not a problem but then doesn't that ultimately, and, and we can see this reflected in driving law, have this trickle-down effect where it starts with these high-level things like, mm-hmm. you know, systemic discrimination and, and you know, attempted genocide and, and all, everything awful that was residential schools um, and, you know, all sorts of 60 scoop and I don't know, I, I could go on about that. Yeah. But, um, but doesn't it then you know, trickle down where into this, this thing where you, you have these people ultimately who are coming before the court saying, I got a speeding ticket and I can't afford to pay it. What can I do? Um, and people not, our, our legal system, not people, our legal system not being comfortable with accommodating that and assisting people who are in those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it it goes so far back, right? Because it's like a lot of the time you're pushing people, or rather the system has pushed people into a situation where they can't afford to pay that ticket, right? And then... Um, where does the system <laughs> take responsibility? Yeah, exactly. And then, at, and then once the person's in court and asking for it, the judge or the judicial justice of the peace doesn't see, like, this entire picture that has brought this person to this point where they can't afford a $368 ticket. All they see is some guy in front of them that's asking to be given a break from what's supposed to be the minimum fine. 
and we're not getting glue reports. <laughs> no, report. no, you're not. You're not getting a glue report, and you're not getting an explanation for why this person's on minimum wage or why they're on welfare. Um, you're getting a 30 second, like, please don't make me pay this. I'm on welfare and I can't pay it. If I don't pay it, I won't be able to drive anymore. And then my life will be unsafe. Cause like, for example, um, we've been hearing a lot about the highway of tears, Mm -hmm. right? And, uh, if somebody previously could drive from their, uh, their small town to Prince George, um, to, you know, go shopping and, and do whatever things they need to do to make sure that they can live their day-to-day lives, um, or even visit family, then they're in a safe situation. And then if they lose their license because they can't pay a fine or because they've gotten one cell phone ticket having an N, now you've put them back into that dangerous situation of having to rely on strangers, um, and we all know about how unreliable it is to actually get get there on the bus or whatever. Sorry, what did you say? I said we all know how that's turned out. Yeah. yeah. I said it, like, you know, in a sarcastic tone. Um, but it's, you know, it probably doesn't even deserve the levity of sarcasm. Mm. It's a really horrible thing. Um, but I, I, I think we should be clear, though. That we're not, I'm not, I don't know, maybe you're, you are, I don't, I assume you're not, we're not knocking the judicial justices. Of no, no, so, and I, I apologize if any of what I said sounded like I was. No, I, it, <laughs> I know, I know where you're coming from, but I don't want anyone hearing this to think, oh yeah, you know, all those judges sitting in traffic court don't care. That's not the issue. It's that even the traffic court deck is stacked mm-hmm. um, against people being able to have sort of that time when you schedule 20 tickets in one session. Um, and, you know, they they do that on purpose, right? They do that because they assume half the people probably won't show up and some of the officers won't show up, so those ones will be quickly dismissed. And some people will want adjournments. And some people will be going there to plead guilty and ask for a fine reduction. But then you also have trials, and mm-hmm. you've got, like at Robson Square, you've got 930, 1045, um, and then uh, 130 and 245. You've got four sessions in one courtroom of 20 tickets each. There's just not time. No, there there really isn't. And I mean, I think more people actually have been showing up since uh, the cell phone blitz started as well. So it it, used (laughs) to be that they had um, that they had prosecutors in traffic court, Mm -hmm. and that might be you know another thing that the government could look at to try and deal with this problem. If they had prosecutors, then they could take, you know, they could still fill the courts the way they do, but they could have one courtroom where it's just hearing cases where people are pleading guilty and want to find reduction. And the prosecutor can read in the facts and make the submissions for the Crown. You don't need the officer to stand there so that if the officer has four tickets and two are for trial and two are for, for a plea, prosecutor can deal with the police and he can deal with his trials in a different courtroom. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be more efficient. I mean, it just seems to me that, like, having somebody there who can focus on those quick matters but who can also ensure, because of the duties that Crown have, that the individual who's coming before the court asking for the fine reduction is getting, you know, getting heard on that point and that the sentencing hearing is taking place in in a fair way and that they're not being railroaded because they're self-represented. I don't know. I I, I mean, I think it has the potential to be fairer if we have prosecutors um, who actually have the time to to go through all those circumstances with people. Um. I wonder if part of it is just that's another money issue, right? Mm 
because yeah. then you have to pay for more courtrooms and, well, and know, pay a prosecutor's I know, salary. <laughs> I know how they can get more money, Emma. They can just give out more tickets. Yeah. <laughs> so but then, but then it's so just like a self-perpetuating cycle. Exactly. Uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. It does cost money to have a prosecutor. It costs money to run a courtroom. It's cost, it, a justice system costs money, but... We are living in a so-called free and democratic mm-hmm. society. We are living in a uh, in a place where we value holding the crown to their standard of proof, where we value having a fair hearing, where we value transparency in decision-making, where we value um, letting people have the opportunity to be heard. And we call those things, you know, principles of natural justice and procedural fairness that apply equally in, in traffic court. Mm-hmm. Why then um, are we not investing in it? And uh, I just get so frustrated all the time about the ways in which we don't invest in our justice system. The same way we see with court delays, we see we see it negatively impacting the people who are most vulnerable. Exactly, and um, I mean, I've I've also thought that it would it would be better if we could have crown prosecutors. Um, running this, these files. Um, the, and, like, the Crown actually has really specific guidelines in terms of approving charges or not approving charges, and they can stay something if it's not in the public interest. So, like, say that somebody um, is going to be put into a really, really bad situation because of this ticket, and, uh, you know, it's... they Maybe they don't have a great driving record, but there's some reasons to have discretion. Like, Crown has that discretion, and to a lesser extent, like, the police do have that discretion too, but um, it's actually part of Crown's mandate that they need to consider the person before them, right? And that they need to think about all of the facts of the case. Well, veering off topic, I think it's really interesting the way, I mean, police officers in BC prosecute the tickets, and they sort of act as the Crown. But it's it's a weird sort of way to do it because the crown have this this mandate and the police don't necessarily have the same mandate but i also find that you know when i'm dealing with crown prosecutors and i phone them on a file and you know i've got my client with whatever really sympathetic circumstance and every reason why they shouldn't be convicted and why it's not in the public interest to prosecute them they're open to hearing that and there might be a policy in place like there's the crown council policy manual that says no this offense should be prosecuted but they can deviate from the policy where it's in the public interest right i find with the police you get superior officers dictating policy um and that and that just being open and shut um, like, I mean, a lot of times we go to court and, and there's a certain way we want to resolve a file. And a lot of officers now are saying, no, my bosses say I can't do that. Right. And, and even where it might be appropriate. Yeah. And I'm not, and it, like, that's not to say that, um, not to criticize those officers at all. It's more just like, that's a different role that they have, right? Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they intentionally don't have as wide of a discretion as the crown, uh, Crown prosecutors do. Yeah, and they work in this sort of paramilitary organization yeah. where they have to take direction from a superior, um, and they're required to follow it, or they could be, you know, disciplined right. for whatever it is. I don't know, flipping off authority. <laughs> That's not the <laughs> word for it. <laughs> uh, disobeying orders. Yeah, something yeah. like that. There, I don't know. I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a police officer. There's something in the police act for not doing what your what your superiors tell you to do. Right. Um, 
And so you have these people under, like, penalty of discipline. Um, and, and they tell me, they say, Kyla, I want to do what you're asking me to do, but I can't because I'll get a code of conduct. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, threatening somebody with a code of conduct for doing something that's actually in the public interest that they, in their discretion, as the prosecutor on the file and as the person with the most knowledge of the circumstances, thinks is appropriate having heard from from me representing my client, I just think hamstringing the police in their discretion. It's just yet another layer here of of eliminating the ability to deal with this appropriately for people who are marginalized or for right. people who are going to be disproportionately affected by tickets. Yeah, because again, it's like that policy is kind of being dictated from, from above or from afar in that the person dictating the policy hasn't met this uh, this person who got the ticket, um, they don't. They don't know. Like it's it's just they don't a know blanket. The circumstances of the case, either the strength of yeah. the evidence, the you know, like I mean, there's a far cry in a cell phone offense from sitting at a red light and quickly picking up your phone to see the text message from your wife to see if she got back to you about yeah. whether you need to pick up dinner on your way home. Which okay, you're not supposed to be doing that. But you're not <laughs> hurting anyone. Right. Sitting at a red light. Um, and if it's just a second, it's, it poses the most minimal public safety risk imaginable. The guy who's, you know, using one hand to hold his phone while texting while driving down the highway. That's a that, different that, story. That, that's, you know, that's far more deserving of rebuke. But those people get the same penalty. And a blanket policy saying there's no resolution here other than this fails to take into consideration the various circumstances of the offender, which is something that's required to be considered in sentencing. Exactly. So, I don't know. I think all of it, all of it together is, is incredibly problematic. I, I don't know. We've, we've come up with a lot of great suggestions here. If anyone with any power uh, or ability to change this is listening... Do what Emma and I say. Uh, yeah, I hope they are listening. I mean, just like what my feeling is that if the government wants to be bringing all these people into court for all of these tickets, um, I mean, I guess they're not, they're hoping they're just going to pay them, but realistically the people are showing up in court, then you should set up the infrastructure to match. And the, um, I guess we've got a few minutes left, but like the last thing I'll say is moving it out of uh, out of court is not the solution. And I, I know the government a while ago talked about their intention to move things out of court, and uh, there's no clear indication at this point in time whether that's still on the table. Um, and I do have concerns that moving it out of court um, is only going to make that worse because you take away the role that the officer has currently mm-hmm. in in exercising what little discretion they are afforded and you set up a structure whereby people are incentivized to plead guilty which doesn't take into account these uh, factors that are supposed to be considered on sentence right and i mean if it's going to be some kind of tribunal if people are going to have to make written submissions we've already talked about the problems with um forcing people to make written submissions when they're not necessarily the most literate or the most capable of, of doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or interacting with an administrative tribunal uh, over the phone or or just creating this whole system. I feel like it, it's just going to be really, really hard for people 
to deal with if that's what happens um, for traffic tickets, and I can't see it being easier than court. No. And I think the multiple layers of the system, too, will be a huge discouragement factor for a lot of people to try and Mm -hmm. get the sort of the justice they need. Right, because then if you want to appeal, that's a whole. Judicial reviews can be very complicated, right? Yeah. Oh, man, I usually like to end on, like, a hopeful... <laughs> oh, sorry, <note. laughs> you ruined it. No, that's fine. It's, you know, we don't have to be hopeful every time. We can, we can, uh, we can be sad that, that things are the way they are. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a real shame. Um, but it is what it is. So maybe, as I said, the powers that be or the powers that will be are listening and are going to take some of this into account. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, um, maybe at least the people that are listening can put some pressure on the people in power to try and change things. I mean, we, you know, we all have voices and, and there's things that we can do in that regard as well. So um, anyway, if anybody wants to talk to us more uh, about this uh, issue in relation to traffic uh, offenses and fines and penalties um, and what to do about it, you can reach out to us at Acumen Law Corporation. Our phone number is 604-685-8889, and you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Um, I'm Kyla Lee, and thank you again to Emma Wilson uh, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me on.